This episode, I'm joined by Rul Thuwan to discuss the philosophy of Philip Meinlander, alongside discussions on Schopenhauer, death, pessimism, and God. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all this work possible. And if you'd like to support Omitics, just keep everything running or gain access to some exclusive content, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Rul Thuwan, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thank you, James. It's an honor for me to be here. Uh, we are going to be discussing a. We're going to be discussing the work of uh, Philip Meinlander. Uh, now, this is a this is a philosopher that so many people have been asking me to discuss, and it's a philosopher who is notoriously difficult to one find anything in translation. So, a lot of my reading, the majority of my reading, has been from uh, a translation of Meinlander's sort of understood as his magnum opus, I believe, Philosophy of Redemption. Uh, and this translation is by someone who just goes by the title UU Hunter. Um, and it's not fully translated. So there's a, there's going to be a lot of ignorance on my my part because I, there's only so much I can get my hands on. But whoever that person is, thank you very much for, for the work that you're putting in. And um, other people, I think in the West now, and especially English, English speaking, if you've come across the work of Mindlander, it's going to be likely from Thomas Ligotti's uh, The Conspiracy Against the, the Human Race, which also figures Geron and Schopenhauer and all these pessimistic thinkers with a with a part on Mindlander. So that's who we're going to be talking about. It's going to be a, probably a very uh, depressing, maybe, maybe, might be redemptive probably, discussion. Yes. Who knows? So if you're having a good day, go listen to something else. If you want to wallow, <laughs> join us but uh before we start rule uh yeah just tell us a little bit about yourself and where your you know where your interest in mindlander started so i'm actually not a philosopher but i work in it um and i don't know when probably a couple of years ago i read schopenhauer's work and it made a deep impression on me and i was looking for philosophers that were in the schopenhauerian school so to say um, and I discovered some stuff about Mindlander, but it was a bit mysterious because there was not much out there on the internet. So I started, you know, going through the uh, antiquarians online, the secondhand bookshops, and I, I found this uh, collected works for an extortionate price. <laughs> but I just, I mean, I bought them and I read them during the big lockdown when COVID first happened. Mm. Um, and many people don't notice, but Mindlander is not just a philosopher, but also a poet, a playwright, and a novelist. Um, so I was, yeah, quite surprised to read all that stuff. Um, and yeah, he's quite something, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, well. We'll delve into uh, Mindland's work. I mean, I'm interested, obviously, we'll delve into it in a little bit, but I'm interested as your answer to my the Hermetics question, because, you know, you, as you say, you're not a philosopher, but there's nothing wrong with that. Many of these figures are almost better approached when you're not trained in that sense, so you don't end up sort of pigeonholing them and seeing them in a certain way. Um, yeah, you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. Uh, Mindland is already there. Who do you pick? Right. So, my first choice is Felicien Rops. He's not a philosopher, but he's a famous illustrator who um, he lived in the 19th century, was actually a contemporary of Mindlander. Mm. Um, he did many illustrations for classics like Verlaine, uh, Baudelaire, 
Julien de Barbie d'Ovigny, I mean, the whole decadent movement. Um, and the interesting thing is that he has many overlapping themes with Mindlander, like uh, death, metaphysics, sex, uh, all those kind of things. But for him, there's also a lot more humor because, as we all know, Mindlander was a pessimist. But Rob's, he's a bit more lively. So, first of all, I mean, it would be nice if maybe he could have created the frontispiece for Mindlander's work, but it will just be yeah, interesting to see them engage in a conversation. Mm -hmm. um, now, the other one, the second one is Carl Duprel. Um, I mean, you know Carl Duprel because you did an episode on him with Rico. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing that would be interesting would be for Carl Duprel to maybe analyze uh, Mindlander's poetry a little bit. But as you know, Duprel has some very interesting thoughts about uh, what he calls the transcendent subject. Mm -hmm. So, or transcendental subject. And he believes that before we're alive, there's this will which manifests itself as love and brings together our parents and just for the purpose of us to be born. Now, why I want to put him in a room with Mindlanders? Because Mindlander believed himself to be a child of intramarital rape. Um, so if you put that fact together with the fact that he invented this thing called the will to die or the will to death. If you put that opposite to Carl Duprel, <laughs> I think it will be the start of a very interesting discussion. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure that they will reach a new perspective, maybe a little bit of a polar perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, so my final guest will be, yeah, I guess you could call him a polar thinker, Otto Weininger. Uh, he's a Viennese philosopher from the turn of the 19th century, who, in my opinion, deserves uh, an Hermetics episode. But... <laughs> yeah. Also someone yeah. who's very notoriously difficult to find someone who... So Weininger, he's the he's a thinker who most people are familiar. Was it Wittgenstein who spent... It's like one of the few books Wittgenstein read, right? And he spent a lot of time with it. Yes. Well, he was also a bit of a controversial thinker because like Mindlander, he killed himself at a very young age after he published his uh, big work. Um, <laughs> but so he thinks that reality always manifests itself in kind of pairs of polar opposites, like life and death, light and darkness, form and matter, being and nothingness. But so except for the male and the female, he calls them, I don't know, two substances that always appear in some kind of ratio mm -hmm. and the ratio determines our character uh, and he, he was one of the first i guess thinkers to talk about uh, gender <laughs> so actually with all the stuff that's going on today he could be very interesting to study uh, and he gives some yeah, inspiring uh, insights on, mm -hmm. on all the heated discussions that are going on um, so do you think do you think that people in that room would actually just 
I mean, Duprel is probably the, the liveliest of the bunch, right? The rest, yes. there, might not, there might not be as much discussion. There might be a, a sort of uh, group suicide party or something. Well, actually, I think Felix Schenrups is, uh, how do you say, he, he describes himself as an, uh, as an uh, pessimist, but he's quite easy to get along with. So mm-hmm. I think he would be the spirit of the group together with Carl Duprel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Yeah, but I agree. It will definitely be a bit of a depressing conversation, mm. and in French probably because I think they'll speak French. But and that's it. Where do you where do you think it would go? Do you think it would ultimately would be a discussion on pessimism? That's a good question. Um, I think it would be a conversation on the big topics: life and death, uh, unity, multiplicity, and the existence of God. Those kind of things. Um, and I think Mindlander would not be able to um, get to, let's say, some sort of middle ground with, uh, for example, Carl Duprel. So it would probably go wrong somewhere. And maybe by the end of the conversation, Mindlander would be in the corner sulking or something. I don't know. <laughs> maybe he dragged, yeah. he dragged Duprel down to his level. But then, as you said, yeah. we, before you started talking, you said Mindlander, you found... As you've gone back and reread him, you found him quite a pigeon pigeonholed, constrained thinker, whereas Duprel's Duprel's very expansive. So maybe Duprel would say, Look, there's other ways to look at this man. Cheer up. Yes. Uh, yes, that's possible. I agree. <laughs> but it's interesting that you read him just before the COVID lockdown, which is almost like the most poignant time to begin reading someone such as Mylander, like as your your guide through the entrapment. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I think he it was a good time to read them because all this depressing stuff that was going on in the world just made the whole experience much more intense. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But as I came back to it, uh, sometimes it got a little bit, I don't know, one-sided uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. But uh, you really have to, he's quite radical. He's, he can be very depressing to read. So I'll be glad when we have this talk and I can go read Carl Dupel or something because <laughs> be yeah. I don't think you're ever done with those kind of thinkers though, right? Like, I, I agree. They, I, agree. Uh, I mean, especially have you have you read Choron, Emil Chorna? Uh, I've I've read uh, bits and pieces, mm. but I have this book uh, which uh, I'm going to be reading for a course, uh, mm. which is coming up this uh, this autumn, mm. which is also about uh, Choron. But mm. <laughs> yeah, what what book is it? Uh, I think it's. Well, it's a Dutch translation. I think it's called uh, Small Philosophy of Decline or something okay. like that. Yeah, the Short History of Decay. Uh, yes, yeah, that's yeah. probably it. So Choron is, yeah. The pessimistic thing is that I think every, every, everyone who's interested in philosophy has their pessimist who they go back to in times of their own trouble and they're like, all right, this is my companion through it. Yes, mm. yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I think actually for me, it's, it's Schopenhauer. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, uh, because I just really like uh, the fact that he says, in essence, we're all one and that there's this unity to the world. Um, and I think you can kind of um, consult Schopenhauer with mysticism in a kind of atheist way. And for my lender, it's, it's difficult. Mm. Uh, so whenever I'm pessimistic or something i just always reach open hour and i uh 
and then just poetry that kind of goes along with whatever he says. So yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah Schopenhauer's. I mean, have you read have you read Schopenhauer's biography? Yes, you mean the Rudiger Safransky? Yeah, one? Safransky, that's the one yes. I've read. Yeah, and you realize, you know, I don't think he was as miserable as people make out. He was bombastic and and cynical, but I think he's he he came comes across as like pessimistically funny. Yes, I totally agree because he didn't follow his own philosophy to the letter. I mean, he liked to have uh, good food and and drink, and he enjoyed women. I think mm-hmm. <laughs> so. For Mindlander, it's quite different. He's he's the opposite. I mean, he did follow his own philosophy to the letter, and I think his life was actually quite miserable. <laughs> so, yeah, I think Schopenhauer. Uh, yeah, he's he's nice. So speaking of Mindlander, I mean, historically, when are we when are we talking about here? I mean, it's not a it's not a long period of life, obviously. Yeah. So so he was born in uh, 1841, I think, and uh, when he killed himself, he was 33 or 34. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he obviously he was from Germany, and Mindlander is actually a pseudonym. He's he's from Offenbach am Main. So mine, it's a, it's a river, which is also close to Frankfurt am Main. His real name was Butz. Um, but since he was a nationalist and he was proud of the place where he came from, he used it also as a pseudonym. Um, so he was the fifth of six children. Uh, and, and as I said, kind of a forced marriage. It wasn't a very happy marriage or a happy family because... Out of the six children, three of them would eventually commit suicide. Uh, so, yeah, that that's one of the things that, I mean, make his life uh, awful. So, yeah, from what I recall from reading, he saw this as almost like the, the thing that he was, you know, like not like a destiny, but something that was like, this is one of my battles is that this is probably a foregone conclusion. Yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when he was around 18, he was living in Italy uh, to learn um, to study business because his father was a, a trader or something. So he moved abroad to go to business school. And during that time, at one point, he received two letters from his brother. Mm-hmm. And one one letter said that uh, he was in a very bad state and he was begging Philip to just come and see him. And then the other letter was a suicide note. And they were both delivered after his brother had already killed himself. So, I mean, and then there's the whole story about his mother, how she, how she died. But uh, <laughs> he had a kind of a strange relationship with his mother. I mean, Freud would definitely say that he has an Oedipus complex, mm-hmm. but uh, when she died, he wrote this, I think, a letter to her, or he said some words on her grave, like how he would never want another woman in his life, and that she was, in fact, like his child, his his wife, and his sister, and she was everything to him. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It, <laughs> he had a difficult life. Mm. Um, so, it's sort of I remember, you know, just to draw him in, Choron's mother said to him, you know, if I'd known, if i known you'd be this miserable, I would have had you aborted. And Choron, take, Choron sees good in this, right? He says, like, 
that makes me realize I'm this like cosmic accident and it gave him a bit of freedom not very he didn't he wasn't happy about that for very long but yeah so he's like I'm just a mistake whereas I guess for Mindlander this uh, you know this this fact is probably a child of marital rape very unhappy marriage and childhood likely and also all these siblings death I mean it seems his life is basically a mistake born into just waiting around to die so he's like it shouldn't brought into the world in a very violent horrible way so he's almost not even sandwiched between birth and death but it's like death and death yes exactly Mm. so if you read any of his poetry or any of his uh, plays or his novel you will you will just see a death wish that's there. It's it's everywhere from from his first poetry from when he was sixteen until the last letter that he wrote to his editor. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think this death wish or this this is why I said that he can be a bit he can seem a bit narrow minded. He's just so focused and obsessed with death that I mean. <laughs> Yeah, it can really be hard on you. Uh, mm. if you just... did he, I mean, did he? Was there anywhere in his life he found joy or any any semblance of happiness? Is there any mention? Yes, yes. I think he he found a lot of joy in art and also religion, and because he was an atheist, but he's one of those people that really admired the aesthetics of uh, religion and uh, of art. So he had. Uh, a big love for classic literature and, and poetry. Actually, his, his younger sister, Mina, she also made a, played a big part in his life. But when they were growing up, they were always just reading the classics together and discussing them. Uh, Mina, she was, I think, very beautiful and she had many admirers, but she preferred to just um, hang out with her brother and, and read books. I, I think she was a bit similar in character. Mm-hmm. Well, she was, um, during her final years, she used to call herself Melancholia Mindlander. <laughs> so, yeah. Did she, did she, did she live long? Well, she actually also killed herself. Uh, <laughs> and it's, it's a terrible story, but so after Mindlander committed suicide, um, since his sister was always just, I mean, she could relate to him intellectually very much. So she saw herself as an apostle of his philosophy. And um, when he died, he only published the first part to the philosophy of redemption. Mm-hmm. And so it was a sister who took all the uh, his, his legacy, his notes, and she compiled what we now know as the second part to the philosophy of redemption. Um, but I think yeah, the philosophy just really got to her because after she finished uh, publishing it, she moved away and nobody ever heard anything about her anymore for a long time uh, until they eventually discovered that she was almost broken. Uh, she would be evicted. So the night before that, she just uh, killed herself. And they, they, the moving company found her almost dead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So. Okay. Well, jumping into the philosophy of Mindlander, the I guess the clearest lineage really to place him in, and, and it is his lineage. He's fairly explicit about this, I guess, is what we call German idealism. But he is a he is a Schopenhauerian, or is he a neo-Schopenhauerian? 
Um, so along with this current, the Kant Schopenhauer line, I mean, is there anyone else who really he's working with or is his philosophy pretty much just Schopenhauerian? I would say it's an amalgam of um, the critical idealism, Schopenhauerian stuff and the Bible here and there, there's some quotes. Um, yeah, he's just basically mixing and matching, but um, his main influence is Schopenhauer because uh, he, he builds forth on Kant's epistemology. So, for example, like the neoconscience, he's mainly inspired by the critique of pure reason and he doesn't pay much attention to the other two critiques. Good. Uh, so he takes his methodology from Kant. So he stay, he's an imminent philosopher. He believes that any philosophy should start with an investigation into our human understanding or the way we obtain knowledge. Um, so like Kant, he believes that all knowledge comes from the senses and our self-consciousness, that the way we understand reality is a synthesis between uh, our senses and our ability to understand, kind of. Um, so he, he uses many of the Kantian uh, lingo, like uh, a priori, a posteriori, uh, the difference between the thing in itself and uh, representation or the real world and the ideal world. Mm. But where Kant said that we cannot know anything about the thing in itself, Schopenhauer, as you know, he said that maybe we cannot have any knowledge about it, but we can experience the thing in itself because when we introspect, we can feel a drive or a constant and insatiable wanting, which manifests itself as desire or hunger, or thirst, sex drive. And Schopenhauer calls this the will. And he says, when we look at ourselves from the outside, when we realize that we're nothing but an object amongst objects, um, we can extrapolate this will to anything in the world from a stone that just wants to go down to the earth to a plant that reaches out into the sun or a snake that strangles a little squirrel. I mean, uh, so Schopenhauer distinguishes between two ways to look at the world, the world as will, uh, which I just talked about in the world as representation, which is uh, Kant's uh, philosophy. So Schopenhauer says that when you look at the world as world, there's no difference between individuals anymore. In fact, in essence, we're all one. But Mindlander disagrees with this. He believes that there's a that the will is individual, and that there's uh, multiple wills in the world. And he believes that um, some attributes can be attributed to the thing in itself, but and not to our representation. For example, extension, uh, movement. Uh, and as a matter of fact, he says the thing in itself can be described as some sort of power sphere, a sphere of effect, uh, which has the ability to affect other power spheres or individuals. It all sounds a bit vague and abstract, but I hope it will become clear once I uh, elaborate a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So since we have this vague notion of individual power spheres that uh, affect each other. The starting point of his philosophy is the question about unity and multiplicity. Mm -hmm. So 
he says that as reasonable philosophers who studied the imminent realm of representation, we can never get around multiplicity. Uh, in the very least, we must accept the duality uh, of subject and object. Uh, but at the same time, our reason just seems to point to the necessity of a simple unity in the world. I mean, in an intuitive way. Um, so how can this contradiction be resolved? Um, well, he says, actually, this unity that seems to be there in the world, it seems to be there, but it, it doesn't really exist anymore. It, it's in the past. It belongs to a transcendent realm. Uh, and it's not accessible to us by definition. Uh, so, and he says that the world of multiplicity, it's the imminent world in which we live. And the imminent world and the uh, transcendent world are separated by an immense abyss, which can only be connected by a very small thread, which is called existence. So it's a bit vague, but it means that um, everything that exists in the world was just, before the world existed, it was part of a big transcendent unity that somehow came into existence. Uh, but the problem is we cannot really say much about this unity that was there before the world mm -hmm. because um, the world is our representation and anything we say about the world is representation and cannot say anything about this, the thing in itself uh, that was there already before the world. So, we can only approach this perfect unity negatively. And so it's uh, timeless. It's outside of space. It's, it's unmoved. Uh, and I mean, it's gone. So he says, but why don't we just accept that actually this unity is, is God? That's his way of uh, making sense of it. Also, he says that the world came to came into existence when God died. Uh, so his Ragnarok is not at the end, but at the start of time. And the whole universe is sort of a collection of decaying fragments of God. And God's death was the genesis of the world. Uh, and the decay from unity into multiplicity is the first movement in the universe, and any movement that happens after it is merely a continuation of it, sort of like a Big Bang determined with uh, combined with determinism. Um, so this combined collective movement of all the fragments or individuals in the world, it's a dynamic interaction uh, with the purpose of just dying out or to transition into nothingness. And this is what Mindlander calls the destiny or the fate uh, of the world. Mm. Mm. So, so, but what? there's one more thing. Okay. There's one more thing because we know now that he says that God died, but it, we, we don't know why. Uh, he, so God existed, but what, what was his essence? Uh, we, we don't, 
we can't really figure it out because we don't have a representation of God. But so we but we can guess a little bit. And this is all a bit complicated and difficult to understand. But Mindlander says that given the fact that God was a perfect and simple unity, uh, he could not be really be motivated by anything outside of him. So he, he couldn't really strive for anything or want for anything. So his only two options were to just be or not to be. Uh, and for some reason, he preferred not being. Uh, he thought that non-existence was better than existence. So we don't know anything about God, but we have to assume that he wanted to kill himself. Uh, and it's this drive for annihilation or this longing for death that's present in every living and non-living being in the world. Uh, and it's, it's called the will to die or the will to death. And wow. it manifests itself as a will to life, but it's only a disguise. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a big thought, but the thing is that he kind of, it may be a bit difficult to understand, but because most people just seem to think that there was nothing, then we live and then maybe we die. Mm-hmm. I mean, or an atheist will think that way. But for Mindlander, it's like nothingness is not the default thing or the thing that was always there for him. Life was always there, and um, <laughs> death is the thing that um, everything is striving for. But we just cannot seem to reach it for some reason, a bit like weeds that don't want to die out. Mm. It's a very nice. So do, do we have like a lot of sort of a remnant of the unified universe within us, but that's now useless. So like yes. you know, Schop- Schopenhauer's uh, will to live, I guess, is is a bit of a, it's like a contradiction because really it's now will to die. Like if you take Schopenhauer's, if you take Schopenhauer at his word, like Schopenhauer didn't, as you said, and remove the sort of false mysticism, I guess, which Mindlander would say, look, that you've put that in to try, give yourself a little bit of hope. If you take it to its to its limit, ultimately you're saying that there's nothing else but to die. And this thing that keeps everyone going is really a bit of a glitch. It's a bit of a, an error in the system. Yes. A remnant of a, a remnant of a time when we had God. Yes, but there's also purpose to it. Because since God wanted to die mm. because he was omnipotent he, he couldn't really just kill himself from one moment to the next so he had to create the world to slowly destroy himself so god's purpose was to die and now the whole purpose of the world is to slowly die out mm. and for that reason all the individual forces they constantly fight each other as to weaken each other so there's a struggle for life but and Everything is just constantly fighting everything else. Right. And with, with every generation, the, the weak just die out and the strong get a little bit weaker until eventually there'll be nothing left. I mean, that's a truly atheistic philosophy because, you know, in, in, in Christian terms, if you were to push against life, you're pushing against the will of God because that's the only thing that keeps life going. But in this sense, the will of God is now that everything ends. So to yes. push against the will of God is to live. So to actually 
give you, you know, the whole idea of giving yourself over to the will of God in this sense is to end your life and to not not yes. just accept death, but accept that death is the one true purpose. Exactly. And th that's the conclusion of his ethics, that, okay. which I, I'm sure that we will talk about mm. uh, a little bit later. But the thing is, this will to die, it's, it's like, it's unconscious. Mm. And the fact that uh, we, we have Schopenhauer's individuality principle, which means that um, he uses this Latin phrase a lot, periat mundus dum ego salvo sim, which means let the world perish as long as I'm safe, as I'm safe. Um, so Mindlander believes that we're all very selfish or egoists. Uh, so in pursuing our own goals, we uh, do this at the expense of others. So this is why we have the will to life, because it, just the mere fact of us existing means that we do harm to other people and we help weaken the collective. So, so what, I mean, how can you have an ethics from this? <laughs> well, his ethics are a bit uh, special, I have to say, because the conclusion is that uh, a devil is just as good as a saint. <laughs> uh, I mean, his... Uh, and he also says that ethics are purely purely subjective mm. uh, because in the end, everything is already determined and the world wants to end itself. So um, anything that we do, it doesn't really matter. Uh, our actions are futile. But if we want to uh, create an ethics, we can do it, but it, it will not really have any effect uh, to the course of the world. Uh, but for example, if you remember Schopenhauer, he's a determinist who believes that the way we respond to motives is determined by our character mm. and our character is immutable uh, and given a certain motive, uh, only one choice will be possible or there's not really such a thing as freedom. Uh, our actions are determined by the causal law. Um, so... Mindlander agrees with this, but he goes a bit further because uh, Schopenhauer, I think he said that our actions are not free, but we are free to be who we are or something. Or if there's such a thing as freedom, it's in, 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 in being. Uh, and Mindlander believes that all being also is determined because, as I said, the purpose of existence is just for the world to end. Mm. Uh, so, as I said, he believes all actions in the world are motivated by egoism. Uh, and this has to do with affirming the will to life because we strive for our own self-interest at the expense of others. Uh, and so we basically, we strive for pleasure and, uh, the biggest amount of pleasure and the least amount of pain. Mm. Uh, but he also believes that there's such a thing as, let's say, purified egoism or, or cleansed, uh, egoism. And this has to do with the greater good. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, 
a bit less terrible than maybe we thought at first. He says that once I see that uh, if I kill somebody, somebody else might take uh, revenge on me and, and actually kill me, then we come to see based on reason that maybe it's not so good to kill each other or to, to steal from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is Schopenhauer or Mindlander? This is Mindlander. Okay. So this is what Mindlander calls the, the greater good. Um, and this is what he calls uh, purified egoism. So that, that death impulse that we have isn't something to artificially do. That's still something that you just have to let run its course. So like in killing someone, you're not speeding up the process. That's like you've, you've sort of taken death for your own, whereas you've just got to let death be would that be right yes that that could be one way to reason about it and that that's that's right but the thing is um mindlander believes an action is ethical when we see that um the purpose of the world is to die out but we accept it uh happily so for him, a killer will still be a little bit immoral if he doesn't uh, kill for the reason of destroying the world. If, if he's killing, for example, because he wants to uh, steal or because he, he's killing out of vengeance, his motive is still not moral. Uh, mm. So, yes, so this greater good... Uh, mm-hmm. It, it can stop us from stealing or from, from killing because um, if we don't steal, nobody will steal from us. And if we don't kill, nobody will kill us. And, but this is the fir- what he calls the first stage of purified egoism. The second stage will be some sort of ethics based on virtues uh, and virtues that uh, he, he discusses are virginity, holiness, love of our enemies, justice, and nationalism, and a bit more. But let's take virginity as an example. Um, The natural or non-purified form of egoism, it it makes us want to procreate because it's the ultimate affirmation of the will to life. Mm -hmm. So this is when the will to life has, or the will to death has disguised itself, and it makes us believe that we want to live. Uh, and when we procreate, it grants us rebirth and it, it continues our bloodline. So if we use our ratio and we unmask the will to life as really the will to death, we realize that these impulses to procreate are nothing more than impulses and death is preferable to life. And we come to see that we must deny the will to life and refrain from procreation by remaining uh, a virgin. And he who suppresses the sex drive is fighting a battle through which the sum of the forces in the universe is weakened, and he's acting in accordance with the real movement of the universe, which is the uh, transition from existence into nothingness. So maybe it sounds strange, but if you procreate, you will need many generations to uh, weaken and then die out. Mm. But if you just use your uh, head 
and and see that yeah the point of it all is to just die out then it makes a lot more sense to just stop procreating and help the course of the world mm. a little bit um so is that would would suffering play a role in the same place there i mean you know when we suffer when we're in pain is that the same thing that we just you accept it as as sort of a symptom of of death in general yes uh the, as i said the final cause of the universe it's to just stop existing uh and he he invented or he he calls this principle the law of declining force which means that everything is just constantly uh fighting itself in order to weaken out and die mm -hmm. uh, and he says for humans this law of declining force it's actually called the law of suffering so to live is to suffer and this is where he draws inspiration from from buddhism and, and religion mm -hmm. uh, but yeah except for for him there's not really any real redemption i mean redemption for for mindlander is just death which is nothingness and it, mm. it's an end to to our suffering mm. <laughs> So is that what is that what so that's right redemption i mean uh, is that would that really encompass salvation and emancipation as well that like the one thing to get away from is is suffering is this like ongoing entropy this decline like once you're away from that that really is the only thing to get away from like if god's chosen that if god has realized as mindlander says you know god ultimately either exists or either just doesn't exist and if God is now dead and realized, look, it was better to not exist, but he has to now let things run its course, the only salvation is is nothingness. Yes. Uh, Mindlander really doesn't believe in, in God. As I said, mm. he's, he's attracted to the aesthetics of religion and he likes to just uh, put a quote from the Bible here and there. Um, but the whole point of his philosophy is to sort of provide uh, a justification for atheism um so god is god is more of a metaphor like he's saying like the, the, the god yes. the, you know the god is dead thing is that even though we know even though if you were atheistic as a metaphor it's clear he's clearly not here and there is this thing this, this slow decline that we have to accept and this is just used as a way to understand how that's working yes yeah, so Actually, I, I think so. Um, yes, definitely. Mm, for him, it's just all about death. Uh, and he distinguishes between relative death and absolute death. Uh, <laughs> so relative death for him is when you die, but you have kids. Absolute death is when you die uh, a virgin and, and you, you didn't procreate. So... For him, the best thing you can do or the highest virtue in life is to commit suicide. Uh, mm. so, so that, that was his justification for his suicide? I think he had a death wish, uh, which, as I said, which was there all his life. Uh, and I think that's the reason why he invented his uh, philosophy um so because i don't know any philosopher that followed his own philosophy to the letter i mean just who did everything 
completely according to the way he said that it, it should be done. Mainlander mm. uh, is the only example that I know. Uh, and for example, I, I translated one of his poems from uh, when he was 17 or so. Mm -hmm. And I think it shows, or it's a, it's a good example of this death witch. Uh, yeah. So, and I'm, I'm sorry for the translation, but it's, it's difficult to translate from German to English mm -hmm. and keep the essence, but I did my best. Like the night about to fall, darkly on the silent meadow, Oh, this grim and woeful world cloaks me in its coldest shadow. With the glow of evening sun dying out as a decor, I traverse the silent lands and greet the shore. Suddenly I tremble as I see a boat float by. The captain is a ghost, I caught his eye. He looks at me so calmly, beckons as he sails along his way. Oh, how I feel a longing, moving me so strongly. I wish to go along and pass away. Uh, so and, every every single thing Mindlander is seeing, he's seeing it. It's moving towards death. Yes, that is that that uh, that captain there is the the one joyous moment in a way, right? It's like the final respite. Yeah, even even looking at the sun, he's seeing that it it's dying. Exactly. the wor The world is really it's a terrible place, mm. uh, and death is redemption. So, <laughs> well, it's a simple I mean, philosophy. Yeah, it, it's simple. I mean, but there's parts that I didn't discuss yet mm -hmm. because actually his critique of, uh, let's say, the Kantian aesthetics or what do you call it, the time and space, mm. it's, it's quite sophisticated. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, and it, it will be a long... Uh, it will, it will take me a while to explain it because it's difficult uh, to understand, but I can try if you like. No, yeah. I think I think that's there for people who want to go into the deeper philosophy. I think most people will be interested in Mindlanders, this this side of Mindlanders' no. work. But it does beg the question. So it seems really what Mindlanders done here is he's found a way, in a strange way, to be a nihilistic nihilist. So he's <laughs> like like you know nihilism is meaninglessness, but he's found a meaning in death but it's still meaninglessness like you're born and it's like yeah guess what all that's going to happen is you're going to die and yes. that but that's so it's like a non-meaning but it is a it's it's the meaning but it's not like a an existential meaning it's like that's what you've got <laughs> yes that's true uh but he's a little bit more than that because he's also obsessed with beauty uh, and it's like he likes to just turn everything upside down and make it fit into his uh, yeah metaphysics of, of decline and decay. So I think there's a lot of similarities to the decadent movement. Uh, for example, if you take Baudelaire and Fleur Dumont, he's just, I mean, sanctifying the depraved and profanating the holy. Uh, and I don't know if you're familiar with Alfred Kubin, uh, but he's another yeah, illustrator, I think from Austria from around uh, 1900, mm -hmm. uh, he, who's also famous for his uh, uh, yeah, decadent art, uh, so to say. And he was kind of 
when he was young, he used to read all the pessimist philosophers like Schopenhauer, but also Mindlander. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of his favorite books was The Philosophy of Redemption. Uh, and it inspired him so much that he wrote a suicide letter and he almost killed himself. Mm-hmm. But then he, he fell in love. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, he, he in the end, he didn't end up killing himself and he became one of the greatest... Uh, uh, illustrators of his time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's like the philosophy of redemption is also a bit dangerous when you see how it can affect uh, people and just uh, drive them crazy. <laughs> mm. yeah. So, you know, there's there was a sense that for Mainlander, despite him not believing in God, that this world then was and is hell. Yes. Um. When you think about hell mm. and, and what it is, it's the worst kind of suffering that you can imagine, or maybe even worse, mm-hmm. and it just lasts forever. Um, but when we think about the world in the Mindlanderian sense, we know that the world will eventually stop existing. Mm-hmm. So it cannot really be hell in this way. I mean, he does talk about the world as, as hell, uh, but... It's more in a metaphorical sense. Um, And let me just find this uh, quote because, Mm -hmm. I mean, he he talks about Satan and and hell a lot of uh, times. Um, But so in his politics, right at the start, there's this uh, quote which goes something like this. It has always been my nature to not flee for the devil, but to remain standing before him, fearlessly looking out of my eyes while feeling his horns with my index finger. Furthermore, I would not be able to withhold myself from throwing back his coat as to get a good look at his horse's feet. At times, he moved my heart, and it would seem to me as if he had neither the feet of a horse nor horns, but instead he were a handsome young man with big melancholic eyes who pointed his finger into the wide blue yonder and golden splendor. Uh, So (laughs) when he talks about hell, it's, it's like this, there's a big literary quality to it. And he just likes to make it seem pretty somehow. Um, And that's, yeah, that's why I think that his philosophy can be a bit uh, dangerous. As I said, he, he wrote one novel uh, during his last months, I think. Uh, he had some sort of yeah, manic fit, which lasted for a few months. And during this phase, he wrote uh, his novel, two plays, some poetry, uh, his autobiography, and the second part to the philosophy of redemption. Wow. Yeah, it's it's really crazy. But when you see the the second volume, it's seven, eight hundred pages. Uh, I he think. did this in two months. Yeah, he did it in a couple of months, and he also wrote this book. So that's why it it almost sounds uh, manic. Mm. Uh, but this 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 novella he he wrote he wrote it in a bed with uh, his his sister, the Mina, the, the one I talked about. Uh, and it's kind of uh, yeah, an allegoric novel. It's almost like a fairy tale with 
which has which has his philosophy as a, a hidden message without him being obvious and stuff. But there's one character that uh, represents the will to life, and another one that represents the will to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's this woman, and there's this uh, love triangle, uh, and of course, yeah, it ends with uh, an unhappy ending. But as a novelist, he's actually quite, yeah, quite interesting. I mean, this book just—I mean, he has this way to just pull you in, and especially in his his poetry and his novella. So if there's one book I can recommend, I would just, I guess, recommend people to start with Cupertino Delfino, his uh, novella, mm-hmm. which I think has not been translated, which is a shame. Uh, mm-hmm. well, and how about the philosophy? Where would you advise to begin with the philosophy? Well, I've, I've also checked out the PDF, the one that you mentioned, the yeah. UU Hunter one, and that's actually very good because it has all the important uh, parts also his uh, critique of the transcendental analytic the, uh, and his conception of time and space it, it's all there Not the politics so uh, yeah so I, th- I think that person prioritized certain parts and there's i think they're slowly still going through it but as you say it's got the philosophy and then the ethics and then there's some like the real important parts so it does give you a fairly good as good an overview as you can probably get at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And especially his uh, argumentation is there, almost all of it. So you can really see why he came to his conclusions because maybe I, I don't talk about him in a very nice way. Maybe I make him seem like uh, a big pessimist who's irrational, but he's not mm. because he, he actually just builds up to it and his argumentation is, is solid. Mm-hmm. So, if people want to check it out, uh, yeah, I really recommend that PDF. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is there is one final question I'd like to ask. I mean, when when confront often con- when confronted with these worldviews, I mean, Schopenhauer does give give us you know he he sort of leans towards asceticism as a thing to do and his vague mysticism. But for Mindlander, I mean, what what do we do now? Uh, do you really want to know? Wow. <laughs> maybe- yeah, yeah, I do. And maybe maybe you can guess, but for Mindlander, the the best thing we can do is, as I said, not procreate and mm-hmm. and kill ourselves. And I'm I'm really sorry, but that's that's the best the best thing we can do. Uh, and Mindlander himself, in his in the last letter we we know that that, that he sent, it's it's a letter to his publisher. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is also in the PDF, by the way, the translation, so people can see it. But when he finished the philosophy of redemption, it was like he no longer had a purpose in life. And he, he was a socialist. So for him, he could have either been a part of the socialist movement and tried to um, reach his political goals, mm. or he could except that he fulfilled his life's purpose by writing a book. And since he, yeah, I guess he was an egoist, he just chose to kill himself. Um, so he'd, he'd rather kill himself than be a socialist. Yes. 
<laughs> oh man, that's uh, that's an interesting way to look at it. <laughs> he didn't want to go to all the meetings. That's maybe that's why. You know, his point of socialism. He had a different conception of of socialism because a normal socialist might uh, say that there's a lot of inequality in the world, and if we take away the inequality, then we will end suffering mm. for many people. But Mindlander believed that we should take away all the inequality to show people that suffering will never really go away. <laughs> if everybody becomes rich and everybody leads the life of a rich man and can spend uh, their time just practicing art and literature, then we will just all fall into boredom, which is even worse than the physical suffering that uh, the laborers go through. So the purpose of Mindlanderian socialism is to just accelerate this deterministic world process and just reach total annihilation uh, today rather than tomorrow. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, you know, from his own logic, that makes that makes sense. And it's, a, it's an intriguing form of socialism. And it's a question, I guess, they haven't really answered as to, you know, this whole idea of, you know, what did Marx say? In, in a day, I'll fish in the morning and then whatever it was, you know, do all these things that you want to do. But if given that, given no suffering, no struggle, no looking to death, eventually you get so bored of the will to life. You'd... Yeah. Yeah. D- during his time, I think the whole culture civilization debate in Germany started to come about. So his work is a little bit influenced by that. Um, he believes that when you study history, you see a process of civilization which slowly unfolds itself. And he thinks that civilization is something that just sucks up all different cultures and, and creates this amalgam of, of peoples with the sole purpose of just uh, weakening them and making everything die out. He believes that um, civilization and technological pro- uh, progress will make it so that we will no longer suffer from disease and uh, from old age, but instead we will just be able to euthanize uh, ourselves. So he believes that this scientific progress will eventually lead to this utopia or his ideal state, uh, <laughs> which is, yeah, of course, very dystopic. And Alfred Kubin, the one uh, illustrator I mentioned, he wrote this book, which is called The Other Side in English. And this was heavily based on Mindlander's uh, utopia. There's illustrations as well. So. If people want to get a feeling for what Mindlander, Mindlander's philosophy is about, I would actually recommend this book, uh, The Other Side by Alfred Kubin. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting, but extremely depressing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is, there anything, is there anything you'd like to add about you know, Mindlander or the philosophy of Mindlander that you feel is uh, key that we haven't really touched upon? No, I, th- I think we discussed most of it. I mean, I, I haven't really talked about his uh, critique of, of Kantian uh, or Kant's transcendental aesthetics, which is uh, interesting, but people can just uh, read it in the PDF, I think. So 
No, I, I think I said all that I wanted to say. <laughs> so so yeah. thank you. We now all know what the end, the Mainlander in end is. Yes. Mm. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty hard full stop for a philosophy to give that. I mean, at least he gives a clear conclusion. Not all philosophers give you that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's just the fact that he, he killed himself by standing on a stack of his own books and just they literally used his own philosophy as a stepping stone to suicide is pretty radical and very theatrical. Mm. Uh, I think nobody can beat that, not even Otto Weininger, the, the other uh, one of the people that I put in the room with Mindlander. I mean, Weininger also killed himself and he locked himself into the Beethoven room or the room where Beethoven lived his last years uh, and died. And Weininger wrote his suicide note and he shot himself in the heart. But I mean, Mindlander's death is definitely a bit more uh, theatrical and uh, yeah, it's no way you can beat that. No. Wow. You know, there's not going to be a nice place to finish up. A happy place, so there you go. Um, yeah, roll, uh, rule soon. Thanks very much for, for coming on and chatting about Mindland. Yeah, thank you, James. Thank you very much. It was an honor to be here.